with Church on the Queensway, and uh, you know they pray for us and they support us, and you know a lot of the outreaches that we've been able to run is because that church is so supportive of us, and it kind of it's almost like they've adopted us, you know. And it, I get a bit choked up when I talk about it. There's something when you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. Uh, that's really, really powerful. So I've asked Pastor Roger in this whole prayer theme if he would come and just share uh, just for a few minutes uh, uh, from his heart on, on that angle. This is a man who, who you know, leads in a church that's, I think, over 3,000 people. Uh, so that may be mind-boggling to you, but I've been there. It's not that mind-boggling. It's just bigger. All right. So would you come, Pastor Roger, and share your heart with us? Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. And the last time I was here, you guys were in the uh, cinema. So how long ago was that? It was your last Sunday. You were moving that Sunday, Labor Day. Wow, that's amazing. And wow, what a blessing to see what God is doing. And um, um, I'm the executive pastor at Church on the Queensway, and Pastor Billy Richards is the senior pastor, and I'm, I, I would be, guess, the number two guy there. Um, but he sends his greetings. And he wanted you to know. And actually, while I was sitting there, I was telling my wife, you know what I'm going to do the next time we come? Because our first service, because of the number of people we are, we have to have two services. Our first service ends around 1045. And it's live streamed. So I'm going to arrange with Pastor Billy that at around 1030, when you're starting, we're going to get him and the church to come in. And maybe we can do a song together or something like that. That would be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? I think that would be outstanding. And I know they really, really, really... Uh, the church is thrilled to be able to help you out. I know that we're going to have a part in your Christmas basket. Uh, uh, we have some, uh, some a donation to give Joe, Pastor Joe at the end. And, but we believe in this church. And you know what you say? Adopted. We don't look at it as much as a family. And maybe we're like the parent right now and you guys are like the child. But it doesn't matter. We're all part of the family of God this morning. And it's so such a privilege for us to be able to help a church like this. Uh, Jeff and Sandy, who are here, he's on our board of directors, and they know the heart of missions that our church has. And I know that Church on the Queensway is blessed only because it's worried, it's concerned more about others than itself. And that's what we have to be. And I encourage you, I saw your slides going up here, and for a small church and the work you're doing to support missionaries, your outreach programs, God will bless this church. You just keep taking care of the poor, and God will take care of you. I've learned that a long time ago. If you are concerned about the things that concern him, he'll be concerned about the things that concern you. So uh, just concentrate on those things. And one last little thing. I know our Constitution has the word jealous in it, too, and I'm working on it. <clears throat> because there's a verse in the Bible that says where God says, I am a jealous God. So even God couldn't be part of our church Constitution. So... We got to fix it. So, I mean, uh, we know what it means, but good for you. I couldn't probably find one young person, 3,000 at our church, who's read our constitution. I'd, be, I'd like to know if our board of directors has read our constitution. So, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great. Congratulations on that. And we just had our annual business meeting, and uh, we have a big church and a big budget, five, six, seven million dollars. And we got through our, our annual business meeting in 45 minutes this year. It went so well. God is good. I don't want to take too much time. I want to share a little bit of a message here with you today. I guess you're kind of getting the regular Quebec special here because after me comes Pastor Joe. So it's like a two for one today for you. So buy one, get one free. You're listening to me and then you get the real McCoy coming up afterwards. But uh, um, I know I've been sharing with Pastor uh, uh, Joe, a little bit about the challenges I think all churches are facing, and a lot of people, when we sang the cornerstone, you touched on it, about maybe you're in a difficult place sometimes, and you wonder if God's grace is really there. God's grace is always there. God is there to take care. <clears throat> and I just want to share a small few verses here, uh, a, a very small segment. When I was here last time, I had a couple minutes, and I talked about how God wants to do a new thing. Well, out of the new thing, this is a small piece of the message. So if I come here, I figure four or five more times, eventually you'll get the whole message. So uh, we'll uh, give you little bits and pieces. But this verse here, I'd like to just read this to you. Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3. It says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you 
allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. This is a time when Israel was spending 40 years in the wilderness. And each of us may feel like we're going through something right now. Maybe it's been a week. Maybe it's been a month. Maybe it's been a year. But I would fathom to say it's hard to find a lot of people who would say it's been 40 years. 40 years. And God took the, Israel, the children of Israel through the desert. And he did it with a purpose so that they would be humbled, so that they would be fed by him, so that they would learn from him. And the whole idea of the wilderness is it's a place where sometimes it feels completely like you've been deserted or you're on your own, and yet it might be the place where God has the best opportunity to speak to you, where you have the greatest opportunity to learn what God has for you. Because when things are going great and things are going smooth and we're going along, it is so easy to become complacent or to become stagnant, as we say, and just be sitting in our place and forget about God because we don't feel like we need him. And the wilderness is a place where God wants to reveal himself so much to you and talk to you to such a point that when you, things are going really well and he takes you out of the wilderness and starts to bless you, he'll know that you're humbled, that you will not forget that, that experience and that you will be able to continue to rejoice and, and, and celebrate him and realize that even all the good times and all the great things that are going on when you're not feeling like you're in the wilderness are by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God. So what's interesting with the word wilderness is it comes from a Hebrew word called midbar. <clears throat> and the word midbar has a root word that is dabar. And dabar means to speak in Hebrew, in Hebrew. So when God put people in the wilderness, he was actually using the midbar, or what he was saying was, I'm bringing you to a place where we're going to speak. The whole purpose is to talk to you. And you know what? I can't get your attention when you're busy with all the stuff and everything going on. But when you're desperate, when you're in a tough place and you're crying out to me, maybe, maybe I'll get a chance to speak to you. And so I'm taking you into a place. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to take care of you. But by the grace of God, we're going to get through a problem. So I don't know what challenges you're facing. But maybe what you need to start thinking about, is this a place where God is trying to speak to me? What is he trying to say to me? What is it that I need to take from this? What is the new thing? This is what I said. This whole message is based on a new thing. In Isaiah, it talks about, I want to do a new thing. Don't remember the former things. Remember a new thing. And there's a, at the end of the verse that I'm quoting here, he says, I'll make a pathway in the wilderness. So what God is saying is there's a way out. But the pathway, before I'm going to make it, I want some time to talk to you. I want to challenge you. So let me wrap two points as I'll go to this one quickly, but I want to give you a very quick illustration. How many of you ever seen, I don't even know, I've seen it, and I've talked about this. A week ago, I was speaking at a church, and I shared this quickly, the March of the Penguins, the movie March of the Penguins. Anybody seen that movie? You've seen it. It's a, it's a documentary, and it talks about these penguins who every single year, they march, I forget what it is, hundreds and hundreds of miles in the, in the Arctic, to get to a place where they're going to have, they're going to birth a new penguin. Penguins are monogamous. The husband and the wife, they meet, they mate for life, period. That, there's a great testimony right there. Marriage amongst penguins is for life. There's no getting out of it. You found someone, you're stuck with someone. The whole life, you've got this person in your life, this other penguin. And every year they'll have a baby penguin, and they march to this place where the mother lays the egg. And then the male has to sit on the egg and squat and keep it warm. They're in the Arctic. While mom hikes all the way back to where the ocean is and feeds on fish and eats up and eats up till she's all bloated up because then she has to march back. The egg will hatch. The baby will be born, but she has to have enough nourishment in her to feed the baby because that's all they're going to get. So it's her internal nourishment that she has to come to provide life for the baby. So what I wanted to say is this. When the moms are coming back, we're talking not two or three penguins here. We're talking thousands of penguins. Have you ever looked at penguins? You've seen penguins. You've all seen penguins. 
they do not look a whole lot different one from another. <clears throat> if you had a row of 10 of them and I mix them up, you wouldn't know which one was here before, which one was there. They all look the same, right? We walk into a crowded room and I'm looking for my wife. I know her face, right? And I just have to look for the most beautiful face in the room and I'm all set, right? But you know what I'm saying? We can look at one another and we have a different look. These penguins look exactly the same. So in walk, a thousand female penguins, while there's a thousand male penguins all squatting around, huddled up because they're freezing cold and they get close and they're all sitting on their egg. And they got to find each other. Remember, they mate for life. The females got to find the male. So what do you think they do? They don't look for faces. I mean, because they are all identical. So they start to call out. The wife calls for the husband. And they squawk. That's what the wife does. And the husband turns around and goes. And they find each other by the voice. Each one of the penguins' tonalities is slightly different. And they know their mate's voice perfectly. And amongst the thousand, they all find each other. And they have their babies and the families move on. You think maybe that's what God is saying? Do you know me well enough in your time of trouble and everything that's going on in the world and all the squawking and all the things that the enemy's trying to distract you from and the noises and buy this and buy that and all, everything that's going on? Do you know me well enough to know the voice of God? The one voice in all the distractions and all the noise. And that only is going to happen as you start to, in the wilderness, realize I got to get humble. I got to know God. I got to read his word. I got to get to such a point that he's inside of me that no matter how much distraction's going on, I can hear his voice. It'll call out and I'll say, that's the voice of God. It's not the enemy. It's not the pizza I ate last night. It's the voice of God. It's the voice of God. So I'll just close up with two things quickly. When you're in a wilderness, what I would say is, don't dwell on yourself. Start stepping up and saying, God, pity party's over. By your grace, I don't know how this is going to end, but by your grace, I'm going forward. Tell me what you want me to do. Help me to bring others to Christ. Help me to share your love. I don't feel it. No part of me feels it. I'm stuck in this wilderness, and it's killing me. But by the grace of God, I will do what you've called me to do. I know your voice. And that's like the Red Sea. You're, the love of Jesus has to flow out of you versus the Dead Sea. I've been to Israel. And in an area of Israel, there's what is called the Dead Sea. You can go in there. There's so much salt. It's dead. It's stagnant. All the water flows in, and it's got nowhere to go. It just stays there and rots and stagnates and stays in the same place. If you look around the shores of the Dead Sea, everything's dead. There's no greenery. Everything's blah. Because it's, it's stagnant. It does nothing. It takes in, it takes in, it takes in, it takes in, but it never gives out. Never. Now, the Red Sea, you go by the Red Sea and you look around, and I've been there, and my wife and I have walked around, and you can see the lush greenery, what's going on in the, on the mountainsides. You can see uh, where some of the messages of Christ took place. There's life, but why? Because the Jordan River flows in and it comes into the Red Sea, but it flows back out. It comes out the other side. It's not kept and kept for itself. It flows out. When you're in a wilderness, let the love of Jesus flow out of you and watch how God will help you out. Watch how God will change it. And the last thing I'll say is, is this. The second thing I'll say is make sure you don't concentrate yourself. Start sharing the love of God, but also do what is called the Shana. Shana means to duplicate or repeat. It's a word they use in Hebrew for the year. Um, we're coming up to a new year, right? Christmas and then New Year. And in a year, spring, summer, win uh, fall, winter. Spring, summer, fall, winter. We all know it, right? We, it's the same thing. It repeats year after year after year. But what the Shana in Hebrew is saying, and it's a, also an opportunity to bring change. Yes, it's going to repeat. But you have an opportunity to do something new with it, to do something new. That's why we make New Year's resolutions every year. This year... I am going to do this for the whole year. And usually by January 15th, we're on our knees saying, God, I'm so sorry. I haven't kept it up for more than two weeks. 
Well, maybe, maybe what we have to do is start praying and knowing God's voice and asking for the power to be able to say, no, God, it's going to flow out of me. I might be in a tough place, but this is the year. I know it's another year. I know things repeat, but I won't be the same. I, I am going to change. I am going to do something for the kingdom of God. I'm going to invite somebody to church and see them get saved so that by this time next year, Pastor Joe has a problem of trying to find a bigger place. You guys should make that a problem for him. You honestly should. Make it a problem. Make him have to have two or three services and find bigger. He's paid to do that, you know? And uh, he's, he's, he and his family are called to do that. Invite somebody. Share with somebody. But use your experience. Let God talk to you. Get to know his voice and do something new. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Um, I won't be long. He's, he's kind of taken much of uh, what I wanted to say away, really. Uh, but we, um, let me pull it up here. We started a little mini-series. We're going to finish it today um, on the book of Daniel. Pardon me. I'm, I'm just gathering my notes here. I was very taken aback by what you, what you said, Pastor Roger, because it's like you're reading my notes. <laughs> I've had that happen before, but it always, I get transfixed when that happens. Um, but anyway, we were looking at the book of Daniel briefly here, and if you remember last week, uh, we talked about we're looking at different pieces and parts where people pray and trying to learn lessons uh, about prayer from these folks because they endured quite a bit, right? Remember, you got Daniel and his three friends, and wow, a lot of problems, problems, problems in their life, and you know, they get out of one and they go into another, and they get out of another one and they get into another one, and it just seemed to be like that. So last week we learned you pray because God's nature is prioritized over his benefits. That's from Daniel 2. Uh, you pray because God shows mercy. We need to get into the habit when God answers prayer with a yes say, well, that's good. God showed mercy and God showed grace, right? And we pray even if God doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deliver the goods. We still say, well, we'll still pray anyway. And uh, we're moving on from that was Daniel chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, really, really in brief. And we're going to just look at a couple of stories today. You know them, I think, already. But we'll look at them really, really briefly before we finish. So you, you have this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember him with the really hard name to pronounce? So he makes current world leaders look like sort of angels and saints, right? Remember, he has, a, he has a fondness for just sort of executing anybody who doesn't see it his way. And so Nebuchadnezzar, when we're, we're going to pick up the, the, the book of Daniel in chapter 6, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Uh, probably passed away, and he's been succeeded by his son, or called his son, Belshazzar, and he's been, he's been succeeded too because he's been conquered by the Medes under Darius. And you can read all of that yourself in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Remember the handwriting on the wall? Remember this big old hand comes because uh, Belshazzar takes all of the goods, all the loot from the temple in Jerusalem, and he's, he's having a big party with it. Do you remember that story? And this hand comes on the wall and writes sort of this ominous words. And you ever hear the expression, the handwriting on the wall? Well, it comes from that story. Uh, so Belshazzar is defeated. The Medes are now in charge of the land, and you have Darius in chapter 6. And you, you look at the beginning of the chapter and you see Darius takes a look at Daniel. And Daniel has gotten a promotion by this time. Uh, he did very well under Nebuchadnezzar. He seems to do very well under everybody, even though he's under tremendous pressure all the time. But Daniel's gotten a promotion and he is now a top-notch administrator. He's, he's, he's in the upper echelon of the whole government and the whole system there. And uh, Darius has a, a thing of 120 people under these administrators. These uh, people are called satraps, and you have these administrators over them, all right? And one of them is Daniel. So he's, he's really high up. He's, 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 he's very much, uh, uh, he has a tremendous amount of authority given to him. And uh, he's so distinguished, and he's so exceptional in his qualities that Darius, the, the Mede, says, you know what, I'm going to put this guy in charge of the whole kingdom. 
and the other administrators, his two other people, colleagues, if you will, that he works with know this, and the 120 satraps underneath, they know this, and they really do not like this. They're very jealous of this fact that, that Daniel's going to be put in charge, and what they do is they form a conspiracy. So they say, well, we're going to look for a way to find some corruption in the way that he governs. And this is all politics, all right? So those of you who like to follow politics and worldwide politics, this thing is dripping with, with politics, very heavy. And they're like, we're going we're gonna to try and find and dig up the dirt on Daniel. And of course, they're not able to do so. They, they try and find corruption in the way he leads. They can't find anything. You know, he never smoked pot. They've got no videos of him. They've got nothing on him that they can say, ah, we've, we've, we've got him now. We, 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 we can convince uh, Darius to, to, you know, demote him or get rid of him or maybe execute him or something. They've got nothing on him. I mean, imagine a politician today where you could find no dirt whatsoever. So they can't find anything. So what they do is very, very clever. They say, we will never find any basis for charges against this man unless, unless, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Ah, if we can get him on his religion... And his particular faith system that he practices, then we're going, to, we're going to get him in some serious trouble. And so they conspire this way because Daniel has this reputation. Uh, his God is a different God and a whole different system than the Babylonians and now the Medes and the Persians are, are, are doing. It's very, very different and he's got quite a reputation apparently. And so they, they form a brilliant conspiracy. And they get together and they go and they try to deceive King Darius. You with me so far? So they go to Darius and they say, you know, Darius, you're a great guy. Uh, live forever, you know. And they kind, of, they kind of, you know, butter him up a little bit. And uh, they say, Darius, we've come together and um, we, we want you to issue a decree. Or in today's terms, an executive order. Okay, the current president of the United States likes to issue these things. So you could think of it that way. He, we want you, King, to issue an executive order. And this is sort of separation of church and state on steroids. So back then, there really wasn't this kind of concept, you know, that, that we sort of try to live by today, although it's a bit of a failed concept. But this idea that you can't mix religion and politics, Back then, religion and politics were all together. But what they're going to do is they're going to say, not his religion. So we're going, to, we're going to convince Darius that Daniel is serving a different God. And so they say, you know, you should issue an executive order uh, that anybody who prays to any God or any man during the next 30 days except to you, Darius. That's right. They prayed to the, to the political leader back in that day. That's their worship system. Say, anybody who doesn't pray to you, Darius, they should be put to death. And it should be, you know, this death by the den of lions. So throw them into the lion's den, issue a month-long executive order that you will execute these people and you should put it, you should seal it by the laws of the Medes and the Persians so that it cannot be repealed. And what does King Darius do? He says, well, sounds like a really good idea to me. I'm the chief in charge around here. Nobody's going to bow down to any other god but me, a bit like, a bit like Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, actually. And he says, that sounds like a great idea. Where do I sign? You know, so all the paparazzi are taking pictures while he issues his executive order, and he turns it around, and he shows everybody, you shall worship only me, nobody else but me, or you will be thrown into the den of lions. I'm so sorry to pick on the current president, all right? <laughs> I know you know that I'm doing that, all right? And I do believe we need to pray for him and those in authority, whether we like them or we don't, we still need to pray for them. Uh, not an easy job, no matter who you are, okay? Uh, so anyway, he signs it, he issues his executive order, and Daniel learns 
that the decree had been published. He's an administrator after all. He's no dummy. He knows what's going on in his own kingdom. And he learns that it's been published. And what does Daniel do? This is the lesson we need to learn. I mean, all he had to do, Daniel, is just lay low for a month. Don't do your religion for a month. It doesn't mean that you're not religious anymore. It doesn't mean that you've thrown your faith out the window, but just be smart and just lay low for a month and you'll live. What's the problem? And what does Daniel do? He says, well, I've learned of this decree. He's not scared. He's not afraid. What does he do? Verse 10 of chapter 6. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, which is hundreds of miles away. And three times a day, he, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done. He does not, he does not change anything because of this decree under the penalty of death. All he has to do is turn his religion down from 10 to 0 for 30 days and keep a low profile. He does not do that. He goes and he does his thing that he's always done. And so what happens? The, the team of people who conspired against him and convinced Darius to issue the executive order, they go with their cell phones over to Daniel's place. They see him. They find him praying and asking God for help, and they shoot the video on their cell phones. It's in the Bible. Did you read it? <laughs> And they go to the king with the tape, and they say, looky here, we got this video of something going on that you need to know about. Oh, king, didn't you publish an executive order that for the next month, nobody can pray to any god except you? And that if they pray to a different god, you have to execute them? Didn't you issue that executive order, O king? And he says, absolutely, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, ha, 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 which cannot be repealed. And they say, look at this video. Do you see who that is? And the king's face goes, goes pale because he likes Daniel. He wanted to promote Daniel and put him as chief in charge. And they say, look, Daniel pays no attention to you. Look at the cell phone video. You put it in writing. You issued an executive order. He pays no attention. And when the king heard this, his face goes pale. He's distressed. And he's like, what have I done? I'm going to have to execute this man who I really like, who I really want to put in charge. He's exceptional. And now I have to put him to death. I've got myself in a big, big corner, a big political disaster, and I don't know what I'm going to do. This is my future, if you will, vice president, and I've got to put him to death now because of this order that I issued. What am I going to do? And so, you know, they're pressuring him. They're saying, listen, king, you can't change the law. You issued it. This is the way that we do things, and you know that. And so the king tries. He tries to, tries to find a loophole. He can't find a loophole in his constitution and bylaws. Right? <laughs> he can't find it. And so he says, I have to throw this man into the den of lions. He gives the order, and he says, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you, Daniel. I hope somehow that your God brings you out alive. Pray even when it is counter-culture and counter-intuitive. Sometimes your back is up against such a wall that the last thing you want to do or even think of doing is, is to pray. It seems juvenile. It seems like you're believing in fairy tales. You, the circumstance is so severe that you feel like almost embarrassed to, to, to say, well, the, the answer that I need is prayer. We'll find anything else, right? But, but he, he did not do that. He goes right through his, his normal routine. He faces Jerusalem, the city that he loves, the city that's in ruins, temples destroyed by the Babylonians. Remember, the people are taken captive to Babylon. And he's counterculture. The culture is saying, do not pray to that God. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. He should have just turned his, his prayer down to zero. 
you know, he should have just hid so that when they came with their cell phones, they wouldn't catch him. But he doesn't. He continues and uh, he perseveres because you see in the end, um, it comes out okay for Daniel. Look at something else, another lesson, and it goes by so fast, the same verse. He prays three times a day, as was his custom apparently, and he goes down on his knees and he prays. There's a couple of quick lessons. The posture that he has and the perseverance that he uses. So I don't know if you kneel when you pray or you don't. Um, sometimes I kneel, but if I can be honest with you, when I kneel and pray, I start falling asleep. <laughs> maybe you do too. All right, so maybe I'll kneel for, for like a couple of minutes and then I'll get up and what I do when I pray is I pace. I walk back and forth and back and forth like, a, like a, an expectant father, you, you know, waiting for the baby to be born. You know, you ever seen those things on television? You got the, this, this foolish dad is waiting outside the room. He's going back and forth, back and forth. His wife's in labor. I kind of pray like that, okay? That's, that's where I'm most comfortable. But, but the reason it's important is that if you have a posture like Daniel, or, you know, you're a pacer, whatever your posture is, you can't really be doing anything else while you're doing that. Like Daniel, if he's kneeling, he's very, very focused on prayer. He's not doing the dishes and praying at the same time. Now, nothing wrong with that, because in the Bible, you see examples of people doing things and praying at the same time. You do see some examples, but the fuel for your day the, the thing that's going to keep your energizer battery pounding the drum, okay? You need a time where you're not doing anything else but praying. And if you start with five minutes, if you start with two minutes, and that's all you're doing, you're, the cell phone is away, the television is off, the dishes are not being done, you, you're focused and your posture teaches you to focus, then that's really really good. That's going to help you to pray more effectively. But look, at he does this three times a day. Some of us, we don't even pray one time a week, much less three times a day. And I don't say that to criticize. I'm just telling you the facts. Like a lot of people in churches really struggle to build a consistent prayer life. Wow, he prayed three times a day faced the city, opened the windows, and he prayed. There's a repetition in there. And when you persevere when you're praying, when you have repetition when you pray, you learn to pray better. You learn what prayers are dumb, and you learn what prayers are smart. Yes, there are such things as dumb prayers. Some prayers that we pray, God, thank God he doesn't answer them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if God answered every one of your prayers, the world would be in a terrible mess right now. And you would be too. Thank God he doesn't answer dumb prayers. But you learn when you pray more often to pray a little more intelligently, a little more with wisdom uh, when you do it more often. How many of you like watching sports on television or you like going to sporting events? Okay, I, you know that I like sports. Do you ever watch the 100-meter dash in the Summer Olympics? Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do without Usain Bolt. I, I just adored watching him run. Oh, my wife will testify. I mean, we've, th there were times where one time when he was running, I had, we, we were out. We had to be out. And I said, give me a, a device that can connect to the internet, please. Because I will pull the car over or go to a coffee shop just to watch those 10 seconds. And in Usain's Bolt, Usain Bolt's case, it's, uh, it's less than 10 seconds. Like he, I forget what his, I think it was 9.56 or something, 9.58. A 100-meter dash in 9.58, which is the current world record, probably will stand for many, many years to come. Many gold medals, probably the, the legend, the best who ever ran. It's 10 seconds. 
10 seconds. But do you know how many times he repeats and those runners repeat and repeat and repeat those 10 seconds? Do you know how much they train, how many years they train just for a 10-second run? And prayer is like that. Do you want to pray a prayer that's powerful? You've got to learn. You've got to repeat, 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 and learn to pray smartly and effectively and powerfully like Daniel. And you see the, the, the lions don't eat them. They don't eat them. The king, he, he goes and he can't sleep at night. He, he can't watch television. He can't watch CNN. He's got screens all over his his house, you know, he can't tweet. He's just, I'm really, really taking a, he just can't, he can't, he's just, the whole night is a mess because, because Daniel's going to die in that lion's den or so he thinks. And so he gets up at the crack of dawn, runs over to the den. Daniel, are you there? Can you hear me? And lo and behold, Daniel's alive. He said, yeah, 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 it's me. We had a great time with the, with the cats. No problem. I just want you to know that God didn't find anything wrong in me, you see, King. And I never did anything wrong to you, O King. This is all a conspiracy. I never did anything wrong to you. And uh, God has rescued me. He sent his angel and he rescued me. And, of course, um, Darius is, is shocked. Uh, his reaction is, is a combination of two things. He says, oh, I see, this is a conspiracy. This is a gross political conspiracy to have my top guy executed. Bring me everybody who, who, who conspired against him. All of them, bring them here, herd them, and throw them to the lions. Wow, quite a reaction on the one hand. On the other, he praises Daniel's God. <laughs> okay, and he, it's all in the same breath almost, you know, and he writes this, this, uh, this kind of edict to everybody, may you prosper greatly, I issue a decree, here's another executive order, he likes them, uh, you know, in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, whoever he is, he works. Right? And so he issues the decree, and there you see the story is done. Uh, and then we jump to the last example uh, uh, today. And you, you got to understand, Daniel is a very, very hard book to read. Okay, just let me give you a trick, those of you who are trying to read it. It is not, is not, is not in chronological order. You cannot read it like a story the, the, it jumps from one time to another time, this king to this king, and backwards and forwards. Uh, Daniel is written in two languages, so you've got Hebrew in there, and you've got a, you've got a sizable chunk in Aramaic. Uh, it is a very complex book. So if you jump from chapter 6 to chapter 9, you're still in relatively the same time frame, because chapter 7 and chapter 8, they jump and they jump to different kings and different rulers. I mean, you go from chapter 6 backwards to the time when Belshazzar was the king. And you see this, this vivid, vivid dream uh, that Daniel has. And it is, a, it is a dream that shows many, many different things that will take place in his future uh, or, or the future that will you know, pass him by two, three hundred years. And then he goes way deep into like end time stuff. And then he is still in chapter 8 when Belshazzar is, is the king. This is before Darius. You've got another vivid, vivid dream that happens, vision that happens. And it's one that's actually celebrated by the Jewish people. Uh, part of it, uh, this is, he's talking about the whole, the whole uh, 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 celebration of Hanukkah, which starts tonight, by the way where you light those candles on the menorah. Maybe some of you have seen that. Well, that's predicted here in Daniel chapter 8, the defeat of the, the Seleucid ruler uh, by Judas Maccabeus in 164 B.C. Anyway, 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 you go to chapter 9. You're back to Darius, relatively the same time as chapter 6. And you see something, it is, it's worth uh, about five messages on its own, but I'll do it in five minutes for you. At Daniel, in the beginning of chapter 9, he reads from a contemporary of his 
the prophet Jeremiah. And he reads, we're told, this again is the first year of Darius. So again, relatively the same time as chapter 6 in the lion's den. I, Daniel, verse 2, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah. Oh, one of the contemporaries of Daniel. That according to the word of the Lord that Jeremiah the prophet was given, the desolation of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, remember, they, they sacked and burned it, destroyed the temple, bring all the people over to Babylon. Daniel and his friends, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, are four of those people, right? And so that, that desolation, that, that uh, um, unfair circumstance, that trial, that tribulation, that... Uh, that stormy gale that we sang about, that, that's going to be for 70 years. 70 years. So he realizes he's, and it's a good thing here, because if you do the math, it's almost at the 70-year period. It's about 65 years since young Daniel, maybe he was 15, 20 years old, was carted over to Babylon with his friends, and it's about 65 years after that that he comes to this understanding of one of his contemporaries, Jeremiah. The thing is only supposed to last only, we say only, 70 years. You ever had a circumstance that lasted 70 years? I mean, not 70 minutes, 70 years. Okay, if you, if you think about that, that means a generation of Jewish people would die in Babylon. So if they're 30 years old, 40 years old, when they're taken captive to Babylon, they're going to die there. That's why in Jeremiah's book, he says, listen, plant gardens, have kids, because you're going to be here for a long time. Seek the prosperity of the place that you're living in, because you're going to be here for a long time. Well, Daniel realized, hey, it's 70 years, but the clock has ticked. It's 65 years. Uh, around 65 years, and so he understands from Jeremiah, hey, it's almost over. We've persevered. We've lasted this long. It's supposed to be 70 years. We're almost there. So verse 3, I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him. We've seen that before, this idea of pleading. Pleaded with God in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And look at how he prays. So number one, he understood how long it was supposed to be but that it's almost over. But look at how he prays. It's remarkable. It's so refreshing. It's such a, a teaching tool for us. Look at how he prays. Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God, verse 4, who keeps his covenant of love and with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. 65 years they're into this thing. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. We have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands, your laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. 65 years into it, and this is how he's praying. Why isn't he praying? Hey, God, maybe you could, like, we've endured enough of this, haven't we? Like, can you shorten it by five years? Can you fix it now? Like, haven't we paid? Like, haven't you punished us enough? Haven't we endured enough? No. Nope. He's in this mode of confession of sin, and it's very deep. I mean, he's, he's covered in sackcloth and ashes, which is what they would do back then. Lord, you are righteous. This day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, Israel, both near and far, were scattered all over the place because of our own unfaithfulness. We and our kings were covered in shame because we've sinned against you. The Lord is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. My, my. So the basis by which he comes to God, 65 years into it, is on the basis that God forgives sin. Why is that so important? Because when we face difficulties and trials and these things that don't go away, sometimes there's no reason or, or rhyme to them. We're not deserving of them, so to speak. Many times we think that we're, we are, but often we, we certainly are not. You know, we have families in our church that are struggling with things that, wow, they didn't ask for. They certainly don't deserve them. You certainly, in most cases, didn't do something that, wow, okay, now you're... But these people did. 
It's clear. It's clear that this was the judgment of God, but the thing lasted 65 years. And yet Daniel still has this freshness of pleading with God for the forgiveness of sin. Why is it so important? Because when we face these kinds of things in life that are through no fault of our own, we lose sight of the reality that no matter what happens with that circumstance, listen, God has forgiven my sin in Christ. So come what may. And we, we lose so often, Christian people, church-going people, lose the freshness and lose the joy of the fact that our sins are forgiven. You know what? Let the circumstance come. It doesn't matter. God has forgiven me of my sin against him. And I can walk through whatever circumstance holding his hand and he won't let it go. Because he has forgiven me. He will drag me through whatever I need to go through. Okay, fine, let it come. But I have his hand through it because my sins have been forgiven. This is the gospel message. It's not, well, serve God and your life will be easier. No, the gospel message is you and I have a big problem. The problem is our sin. It's not that, well, we live in this place in the world. How fortunate are we? How unfortunate are we? It's not, well, we're sick or we're, we're, we're poor or we're rich or we'll get, things will get better if we just serve this Jesus. No, it's you and I have a sin problem that needs to be dealt with. And the problem is not God's. The problem is ours. But God has made a way for your sin and my sin to be pardoned. Isn't that good news? Now, if, you, if you're a sinner, <laughs> if you're a person who you know the pain of sin and the result of sin like I do, you'd be very, very happy about that. In churches of our stripe, people used to wave little, little handkerchiefs when you talked about that. And the forgiveness of sin, friends, don't lose sight of that. That is such a powerful truth that we just push aside. Well, it's so fresh in Daniel's mind. For him, the issue is, God, we blew it, we sinned against you, but yet you are merciful, you are forgiving, even though we have rebelled against you. And then he continues to go through this whole thing, and he talks about kind of the history of God's faithfulness and so on, and then he gets to his conclusion of his prayer. Verses 18 and 19. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. And look at this. When you don't know how to pray, okay? And many people say, I have no clue how to pray. When you don't know how to pray, you can pray this way, all right? And it, it, it's on the screen there. This is his prayer. I just love the end of it. Oh, Lord, listen. Listen, right? That's pretty, pretty simple. Oh, Lord, listen. Oh, Lord, forgive. Uh, oh, Lord, hear and act. For your sake, oh, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Listen, forgive, and act. If you don't know how to pray and you pray that way, you're praying some smart prayer. I want God to hear me. I want God to forgive me, and I want God to do something. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you can do. Say, God, do something, because I can't do anything with this. You need to do something, and this is the way that Daniel prays. Amazing, and the results are even more amazing. Books have been written on this. This, this section of scripture from verses 20 to 27 is taught in Bible colleges and seminaries. It is certainly not the response that Daniel was expecting. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying. Quick, quick, quick answer. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, who he had seen before, this is an angelic being, also known in the Christmas story, the same Gabriel, Gabriel, he comes to me and he says this to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you a shorter captivity in Babylon. No. Nope. Daniel, I have now come to make life easier for you. No. Nope. Daniel, I have now come to give you insight 
and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, and I, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so you need to understand what I'm about to tell you. You're thinking about the here and now, Daniel. You, you're thinking about the captivity coming to an end, and you know, you're, you're, you're pleading with God, maybe to shorten it, maybe not, but you, you, you want God's attention. You, you want to perhaps be sure that it's going to be over, you know, maybe in five years. Whatever you're doing, Daniel, I've got a bigger picture that I'm going to tell you about. You're in the here and now. I'm going to tell you about the future. And he gives him what is known today as the, as the 70 weeks prophecy. In, in many, many schools of thought, this is a highly complex panorama of time where the prediction of the time of the Messiah is given to us. He says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. The whole kit and caboodle is going to be over in 77s. And many people think that's 490 years. And he breaks it down and he says, I want you to know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which would take place in 444 under Artaxerxes, which you see in the book of Nehemiah. From that time until the anointed one, until the Christ, until the Moschiah comes, you know, the one who you're looking for, there's going to be 77s and 67. 62 sevens, or in many schools of thought, 483 years. And it's amazing. You do the math to the T, counting, you know, what was the solar Hebrew year and how did they reckon time and blah, blah, blah. And what do you get? You get the time of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Goodness. Wow, that's not the answer that Daniel would have expected. And then he talks to him about the, the last packet of seven years, which is, which is going to come in a time to, uh, in a distant time. And he, and he talks about this figure who some say he's referring to the Antichrist and what will happen there. What's his point? He's giving a whole panoramic picture way beyond Daniel's time. And this is what God does when he answers prayer. Very often, God will surprise you. He's not going to give it to you necessarily the way you're asking. But sometimes the answer is going to be so different and so far beyond what you, in in Paul's words to the Ephesians, what you could ask or even imagine. And you see that on display here. So whatever your circumstance, whatever your stormy gale, Whatever the dark situation may be, wow, can you learn so many things from Daniel. Posture yourself in prayer. Persevere in prayer. Be counterculture. Be counterintuitive. Remember that your sins are forgiven. It's such a lost, a lost concept today in many people's lives. When you don't know how to pray, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, do something, and remember that he's going to surprise you. He's going to surprise you. May we be surprised this Christmas by a God who answers prayer in ways that we could never ask or imagine.